You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Chris Klink is the author of Goodbye, Lark, Lovejoy, and Sissy Klein is Completely Normal, which have received praise from Bustle, Midwest Book Review, Kirkus Reviews, Women.com, Lone Star Literary, Britain Company, Travel and Leisure Magazine, and Entertainment Weekly, among others. Those are some pretty big names. Uh, set in middle America, her novels are laced with love, heartbreak, and just enough snark to rock the boat for the relatable characters as they confront transformative challenges. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Klink. Hi, thanks for having me. I have to say, just reading that description, um, it sounds like a country song, Love, Heartbreak, and Snark. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm from Texas. I'm, I live in Kansas now, but I spent the first 48 years in, in Texas. So probably a little bit of my DNA coming from Texas. But a little bit of country. Are, are you sounds like a country Western song. <laughs> Are you a country music lover by any chance or? I like all music, but yes, I'm, I am, I am Willie Nelson's biggest fan, like hands down. I don't know what other people think they are, but I am, but I like a lot of people. So I like, I like a lot of music. Yeah. He was just out here. I want to say in August, September, uh, for Farm Aid. Um, so I'm in Connecticut and he, he brought Farm Aid, he and John Cougar Mellencamp, or is it John Cougar? Or is it John Mellencamp? I don't know what he goes by these days, but um, <laughs> they were both here with a with a bunch of other people uh, as well. I did not go to the show, but I heard it was fantastic because I had some friends who went. Um, oh, I been, love him. I have I've been to I don't even know. I think I don't know ten concerts, maybe more. I don't know. But when we were, I, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just I have I have three of his bandanas. You know, he signs the bandanas and passes them out. So I've got three of those. They're my prized possessions. <laughs> when, uh, when we were kids, my father had, um, he had a company car and it was an Oldsmobile and um, it was a new Oldsmobile and it came uh, with a tape of uh, driving tunes. First track on side A of the Oldsmobile driving tape on the road again. And uh, we, uh, we, we listened to that quite a bit. We used to take a lot of road trips uh, as, uh, as a family. So I, I will always remember Willie Nelson for on the road again. I'm surprised it wasn't, um, what's the song I'm thinking of? Roll me up and smoke me when I die. Well, <laughs> that would have made an impression. That would, well, I, I don't think uh, Don Carlin would have appreciated that as much, but uh, his offspring uh, later in life might have. <laughs> you never know. What a great, you know, it's funny. I watched a, um, a documentary on Amazon last night about Nashville. I'm actually going to Nashville uh, next week for uh for some business and it was around uh, singer songwriters in nashville and um they did mention willie nelson um uh in, as part of that and um but fascinating he's a great great musician great songwriter i mean he is absolutely one of the best i agree so i always like to say that this is about uh, uncorking the stories behind the story so chris i'm really curious where does your story as an author begin 
Oh gosh, uh, it begins a long, long, long time ago. I was um, in elementary school. I knew early on, I had two fabulous elementary teachers in, you know, they didn't call it English, they called it language arts. And I knew then that I, I mean, they made me, they gave me the confidence to know that I could do anything, but they told me I was a good writer and I believed them. And maybe I was a terrible writer and they just, you know, whatever I figured out how to get there. But um, maybe I'm still a terrible writer. Who knows? But anyway, no, I hope not. Um, when I got my first arcs, though, from the first book, the first two books that came out of the box, one went to one teacher, one of those teachers, one went to the other. Those were oh, the first two. So I just, I always knew I was going to write. I tried to write. I didn't want to go to, when I was in college, I was a communications major. I've got two degrees in communications, but I thought about doing English, but I didn't want to have to study Chaucer and stuff I don't want to read. You know, you want to read what you want to read. And I didn't really see the value of reading that, which is terrible because there is value in every, in all literature. But I was very impatient. And then when Grisham and I'm trying to think of who else came out, like Grisham came out. There were some of those that came out that I remember listening to the audiobooks thinking, oh, I want to, I want to do this. I want to do this. But when I tried Ooh, it was bad. It was, it was really bad. And I had little kids and I thought, I don't know that I'm, I just can't do it with little kids. And so for years, my husband and I joked about when I write this book, when I write this book and um, in 2008, we went down to San Antonio and our daughter was there doing a musical. And she said, I've got to take you over to green Texas and you've got to see this little town. And okay, well, we go eat at the, at the grist mill, which over, over, there's a big deck that overlooks the Guadalupe and where people are tubing down the Guadalupe and next door is the, the green dance hall, which is one of the oldest existing dance halls in the country. And it's like two in the afternoon. She's like, we got to go in there and just look. And you know, I've got my younger kids with me. I'm like, okay, well, I didn't realize it's not that kind of a, you know, it's not like a, a bar. It's, it, it is in, in the evenings, but during the day it's more touristy. And I walked in and the boards gave under my feet. And I said to my husband, I don't know what the story is going to be when I write it, but when I write it, it's part of it's going to happen here. That was 2008, I think. I didn't start writing that story until 2015. And it wow. was published last April. That was the Lark Lovejoy book. And, and that was because in when I was 46, my husband said, Christy, when are you going to write that book? <laughs> I'm 51 now, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, it took me a while, but um, so anyway, that's my, my, that's how I got here. Well, let's, let's, let's take a trip back. You know, if we got into our DeLorean hit 88 miles an hour, like we're doing back <laughs> in the future, those, uh, you know, elementary school days, um, what were you writing? What, what, what was, um, do you remember what you were writing that was impressing your teacher so much? I really don't. I honestly, I, I mean, you know, you write, you make little books and, you know, with the yarn and, and at the time you think it's the greatest thing ever and I'm sure it's in a moth-filled box somewhere you know in in the attic or got tossed out or something but um I I really don't remember what I wrote I just I remember what I read I remember books that I read that I loved I don't remember what I wrote but you had that spark it seems like you know your teachers they ignited that spark and that's something I hear quite a bit from authors is that you know they knew even if they didn't pursue it intentionally as a career later in life, meaning kind of when they went to college or university, that they had somebody in their life, and usually it's a teacher, 
who encouraged them at some point in time. And I'm just curious as to how important you think encouragement is, um, you know, to, to young people in the writing process. Oh, I think it's extremely valuable. You know, writing is a solitary, it's a solitary work. I mean, it's your solitary, you're by yourself. These stories happen in your head and they're so personal and, it's so, even though you're writing it, you know, fiction, you write about other people, it still feels so personal that it's kind of scary to share it with people. I went, oh gosh, I think I went almost a year without telling people, you know, outside of my close knit family and friends, what I was doing. I didn't want people to know. And it was, it was almost like coming out like, oh, okay. I'm, I've written this book and, and I waited like for them to throw something or say, are you crazy? And, you know, some of them did. I had one person tell me, you realize it's like, you have a greater chance of like getting struck by lightning and getting that thing published. And I was like, oh, that's good. And that's why people don't, that's why people need encouragement because they don't want to tell people that they're writers because the odds are so stacked so far against us that it, it's scary. And, and so you take this personal thing and go here, beat me up for it. You know, here's, the, here's this book I wrote. Yeah. I mean, not to get all Brene Brown on us, but it does take a fair amount of vulnerability to, mm. to tell somebody, Hey, I've, you know, I've written something and I think it's worthy of being published. I mean, it takes vulnerability. It also takes a little bit of ego and, and a dash of confidence as well um, to, to actually, you know, dream up, something that you think other people may want to read. Um, so, no, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, I, you know, and, and, you know, even though we write fiction and, and that's what I write as well. Um, I mean, I do write a fair amount of marketing stuff that's nonfiction, but um, that's not all that exciting. Um, you know, there is, there's always a little piece of your person that goes into these stories. And, and I find that my friends are always asking or, or family members are now, you know, people who reach out to me on social media saying, how much of this story is actually your true life? And uh, I'm like, you know, you'd be surprised to find out that maybe 10 to 20% is, is real, but the rest is all imagination. Um, you know, I, I, I've never been to Hawaii, although I've had characters who uh, have had many adventures there. Well, like when we were talking before, before you started recording about different things our, our parents said, I was and I have some notes here that I was jotting down so that I can put those in my little spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet so I can remember things like that when I'm looking for something creative. I mean, you, what you hear and what you see is your story is part of your, becomes part of your story. That's just the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all experience. Um, so, you know, you, you obviously did not pursue writing as a career as your first career. Um, okay. you know, even though you, you had a passion for it, you recognize it when you're younger, when you did go to college, um, what what was your dream? Like, what did you want to be when when you grew up? What what was your plan? My plan, what my dream was that I would do some other things that were fun, and then I would write books because I need. I thought I probably needed some life experience, and so I, you know, I taught at the college level. I taught communications classes. I did a lot of marketing you talked about doing the the nonfiction work that you know the stuff that you don't get your name on that you know your company asks you to write all the technical writing stuff I did technical writing stuff for pretty much everybody I worked for and my last job I was uh the district or the a regional not regional a um branch manager for the juvenile diabetes research foundation for the top 51 counties and so 
that there was a ton of technical writing with that. I mean, basically you needed to tell the stories without telling the story of this particular child, which sometimes the parents let us do that. But, you know, a lot of times it was telling the story of those children. So people, you know, you'd bring awareness, you'd bring donations, um, you know, to support the research. And so there was a lot of that. And I, I just had always had that craving to write fiction. And so that was, you know, it, it, but it did help to get all that life experience. It really did. There's a lot of things I don't think I could have written about if I hadn't gone through all of that. Yeah. Might, might come across as uh, almost inauthentic, um, which is the, you know, the kiss of death. Um, but, you know, I hear what you're saying, you know, I had a very long career and still have a career uh, in marketing. And, you know, when I was, I'm self-employed now, but when I was, you know, working for employers, I always wound up, even though it was never in my title, I always wound up writing newsletters for the company, like internal newsletters or sometimes client facing newsletters, it, it, you know, without a doubt, like it always happened. Like it always found like that assignment, that special project always found its way to me. And um, that's what eventually got me thinking, hey, you know, I guess I'm pretty good at this. And, you know, I'd like to scratch the itch of, of writing fiction. But tell me about this series. Um, so I know you've got two books. They're, they're both part of a series. Um, what was the impetus for the series? You know, it was it was that day in green. Uh, I wanted to do something that that felt right with that, that I could I could draw a picture around that scene. And that's kind of how it started. But, you know, for for a couple of years before I started writing full time, before I quit my job to write, when I would watch movies or I would read books, I would think about, you know, this is the especially movies. I think, you know, hope floats. I, I remember saying. Birdie Calvert. Birdie Cal. Oh, I love Birdie. But but I wanted people to when they finished one of my books, I don't want it to. I I don't write southern fiction, even though they take place in Texas. I also write. I just finished a book writing a book that's set in Kansas too. But I I don't want it to be. You know, I don't want to be branded as southern fiction. But I want people to feel the way that I felt when I finished that movie. You know that just that that the, all of the all the pieces are wrapped up in that you know, these flawed characters, even the ones that at first, in the beginning of the movie you don't like, you start to see some value in them. And that that was really what I wanted to do with that first book that I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. I just have to pause here for a second on, on Hope Floats because uh, my wife and I saw that movie um, before we were married. And uh, of course, I, I can't remember where it is in the movie. I think it's at the end. Uh, to Make You Feel My Love uh, is on the soundtrack. Um course, written by Bob Dylan, recorded by Bob Dylan, Billy Joel, Garth Brooks. And I think Adele now has a cut of it, but mm -hmm. we use the Garth Brooks version as our wedding song. Oh, I love that. I, I, I actually bought the soundtrack after I saw the movie the first time. I said, yeah. we had to go to Hastings and get the soundtrack. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great one. Um, so, so you, you want to give people kind of a feeling of what it's like to kind of grow, grow up where, where you grow up and, and just, you know, having traveled, I mean, I, I've been fortunate enough to travel to, to most, more states in this country than I've not. And, you know, I'm based here just outside of, of New York City in a suburb in Connecticut. And, you know, if you don't know, if you've never traveled through sort of the heartland of the country, you're, you're missing, I, I believe anyway, like you're missing like a huge, you know, swath of, of what America really is because America really isn't New York and America really isn't Los Angeles. It is pretty much everything in between. Um, 
and it's it's hard to kind of really paint a picture of what what the Midwest is like if you haven't been there. Um, but it sounds like you're trying to do that with um, with your work. Yeah, and it's funny you bring that up because the first in the first book, the Lark Lovejoy character, her life changed. We kind of get to know her, and then we find out how her life changed on 9/11, and that was when she decided she'd been going to school. Uh, she was majoring in viticulture. She was going to be a winemaker. But after 9-11, she'd had a bad experience the summer prior at a at a uh, an internship in Calistoga. And so she chickened out. And then at the same time, there's a male character that their their stories cross. And he has recently returned from Afghanistan. He lost his leg in an IED incident. And so both of them have PTSD for different reasons. She does because she lost her husband. But um, both of them, when they talk, about 9-11, they talk about where they were that day. You know, both of them are from Texas, but he was like in fifth grade and she was in college. She's older than he is. Mm -hmm. And when I was writing this book, when I was going through edits, I was working with this credible editor, um, Laura Ross out of, out of New York. And she asked me, she's like, did people like, were people really this affected in, and I, cause I really tried to draw that picture of how I think the character, the male character says something about how he imagined it was like a cloud, like that ash cloud and how that cloud crossed and kind of went west and dropped little pieces on every state as it went west and how it affected them in different ways. And, and what it made me do is I went back and like got on Facebook and started looking at everybody who was of different ages and asked them, where were you on 9-11? did your teachers come talk to you? What was it? And so then I, I just kind of doubled down on that to make sure that I painted that picture even clearer um, to show that, you know, it was, it was horrible if you were in New York city, no doubt, but it was, it was pretty bad in Amarillo, Texas, where I was or Dallas or, you know, wherever you were. And so, so we're all, you know, I think that's one of the things I tried to get across in, in my books too, is that we're all more alike than we are dissimilar. And, and I think depending on, you know, people, oh, you're from New York. Oh, we're not alike. And I, I find you to be a very pleasant, very nice person, a lot of fun. So, you know, we're all more alike than we are dissimilar. And, and I think that's something we need to be reminded of sometimes. And I think that's the role of, of art. You know, that's the role of, of kind of what we do as writers is to, to, to really build empathy for for people, um, and and just kind of expose you know people to to people they haven't met yet, and and um, so yeah, no, I think that's um, that's awesome. So tell me about this um, the second book, the the book forthcoming release uh, November 9th. Um, Sissy Klein is completely normal. I'm curious about the the title here. Uh, what can you tell me about the book? Uh, well, the the book it's kind of a kind of a little bit of a uh, irony is because Sissy doesn't know what normal is. I mean, normal to her is what her mother says it is, and usually that means that something's gone awry. And her mom says, "Oh, well, that's just that's just normal." And that's her way of you know putting a little whipped cream and sprinkles on it and calling it normal. <laughs> it's all okay. And and there's some things that happen, like Sissy gets pregnant when she's 16. That is not normal despite her mother telling her it is and so but when you're 16 you're a little bit numb to what the real world is like and when your mama's telling you this you know you want to you want to believe her you want to trust her and so she kind of clung to that and what that there was a character in the first book that a guy that was just obnoxious and I just I still don't like him but I couldn't <laughs> 
we see his wife in two scenes and we, we kind of feel sorry for his wife and we wonder if there was some abuse. And, and I started writing the second book about a different character. And I kept going back to that, that character, that, that woman. And I wanted to know why was she married to him and why did she stay with him? I mean, her, her parents were pretty well to do, you know, so it wasn't a matter of needing means. She was very attractive, smart girl. What, what was it? And so I kind of did a little bit of a character study and dug into that. And when I did, I found a fascinating story that I didn't even know. And so that was, that was Sissy Klein's story. Interesting. So is Sissy Klein, I'm sorry to be thick-headed, but is she the, the spouse in the She's previous? She's the spouse of the, of the thick-headed guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's worse than thick-headed. He's, he's not a nice guy, but, but we find out why. And that's the other thing that was kind of fun is we find out what his story is and how he landed in that position. And he has some family, you know, not to excuse his behavior, but he has, you know, we're all the product of the way we were raised to some degree. And he was, um, but then about midway through the story, something tragic happens and it really unfolds everything that Sissy thought she knew about him, about her family and really about herself. And it gives her a new shot at life. And as hard as it is, she gets to redesign things the way she wants them. So that's one of the things I love about writing is that, I mean, I typically go into a new project with some idea. I mean, obviously I have a spark, which, which then, you know, won't leave me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though if I tell, you know, I'll tell my wife, you know, I'm, I'm taking a break. I'm not no more writing. She's like, great. I'll have you around at nights again. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, but then like it'll hit an idea will come to me and then I'll outline it. So I always start, that's usually my process where I'll outline the story. I'll know where it's going. I know where the beats are, but even though I have that outline, I always find that when I'm writing, um, I learn something like, it's like curveballs come at me. Like, I'm like, Oh, you know what? It's really not going to happen this way, you know, or this character, you know, this something really bad happened to them. And we need to, we need to kind of follow up on that or, or whatever. Um, so it sounds like you, you too kind of have this sort of process where you're kind of, I don't want to say discovering as you're going along, but um, you're kind of learning about these characters as you, as you kind of create them. And and that's kind of fun, isn't it? Oh, it's so fun. I mean, it's like, you know, you meet, meet a new person and they're not going to tell you all their secrets the first day, but when you know them for three or four years, you know, a lot about them. And that's how it is when you're writing their story, you start out, you think, you know, who they are, you know, what they look like. You know, you know, what kind of car they drive, what, you know, those are the easy parts. It's, it's why do they, what makes them tick? And that's, what's fun. Yeah. Find out what that thing was that happened when they were 10 years old that made them, you know, forever afraid of dogs, you know, whatever it is, there's just always, I don't have a character that that happened to, but you know, there's always something. Well, you know, it's, you know, um, I, I'm just fascinated by like the, the sort of emotional maturity it takes to like really craft a, a well-rounded character. Cause you know, our characters have to be interesting. Um, and, and in some case, in many cases, interesting characters don't, don't have to be likable. I mean, you just mentioned kind of in the first book, I know we've been talking about how this character, we learn more about him in the second book, but you know, you don't like him in the first book, it sounds like. And, but it's important to write characters that you don't like because there, there needs to be some kind of tension somewhere um, or else it's, you know, the stories kind of fall flat. What's your approach to writing characters that, that you don't like or who are unlikable. And I ask that because it seems in, in popular culture today, 
you know, our, our new heroes are anti-heroes who are extremely unlikable people. You know, I think of the Don Drapers of the world um, and there's a host of others, you know, the Walter Whites, people who do really bad things. Um, but we root for them somehow. What, what do you have? A, do you have a, a, an approach for writing characters like that? I love writing characters like that. I love making it because I don't want, you know, you don't want your bad guys to be two dimensional cartoon characters. You want to find out, you know, what makes them tick, how they got there without, without putting it on the page in the first two chapters, you know, you want to unwrap that. And so I, I do, when I know somebody's going to be a bad guy, I don't know what their bad guy story is, how they arrive there, but I do it's in the, it's in the works from the very beginning. What, what is it? And I'm, I'm just kind of letting it stew. And then it's amazing by about a third of the way through the book, it clicks, you know, what their story is and, and how we got there with Caleb, the, the husband of, of Sissy, I knew he was kind of letting, he'd let himself go and he was drinking too much and he was way flirty with this woman that was not interested in him. And at the time he and Sissy were separated in the first book. And so so he was a little cartoony. And I think that was one of the reasons why it was fun to go back and, and write their story, because I felt like it was a little bit like saying, okay, here's the bad guy. Okay. Now we did this. Now we push him out of the way. He's gone. And he was gone, but, but to be able to pull him back and really show, you know, the good and the bad. And, and he, he was a good, he was a good dad. He was a great dad. And so there's that. And, and you, you know, we're not, necessarily the sum of our parts you know you don't want to say oh well he's a good dad so that excuses everything or he's a, a drunk and so that makes him not be a good dad you know so it's, it's just really fun to draw draw those pictures and really you know see where the shading happens right but but uncovering the whys and giving your readers the whys is it's a real gift you know it's a real gift to help them understand who this character is because you know characters without some kind of arc are just mm-hmm. kind of ho-hum and they're kind of they're kind of ho hum. Um, I'm curious as to you know now that you've uh, you, you've got two publications kind of under your belt. Um, what what do you love most about writing? What what really fuels your passion for it? Okay, which thing? I mean, I love I love drawing the pictures. I love you know making the world fair because you know we've all met people that that the world is just dumped on them and, and it keeps going, it keeps going. And, you know, and it's, it's just nice to see, see the underdogs come out ahead and, and see that the bad people realize that, you know, they've done something bad and, 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 you know, we, we get to, you know, we get to move our little people around and, and we get to make that, that bad guy come around and say, I've been, I should have been better. And, and I think that's really fun because, I, I want to think that at the end of the day, when someone is unkind to someone else, that at the end of the day, they recognize that and feel bad about it. I want to think that. I know that's probably not, you know, I'm being naive, but in books, on some level, we can make that happen. Even if it's, you know, we drop a house on the bad guy and then, then it's fair. <laughs> I, I have to say, I love the escapist nature of, of writing because, you know, like you're saying, you can create a world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can create a world where your rules apply and, and life, you know, for many of us adults, um, our rules don't apply. I mean, I have, you know, I, I was married with three kids by the time I was 27. Um, so I had, you know, I had, um, a lot of responsibility thrust upon me at a, at a very young age. Now I'm an empty nester. 
I'm trying, I'm trying to find my way through that, to be quite honest with you, because it is a very strange experience. I don't know. You know, <laughs> as you know, as a dad, I was extremely involved. I mean, I was at everything, um, kind of pulling probably more than, you know, my fair, my fair share, if, if we're being honest. But um, now that they're gone and in college, it's like, I'm like, I, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. But, it, 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 but, you know, I had a lot of restraints or restraints, constraints, I should say. I wasn't like tied up or anything. Um, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> yeah, that, that's for the, that's, that's I for write, a different podcast. I was going to say, I write those stories under a pseudonym. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I had some constraints in my life and now it's like, but, but when I was writing and I was writing since my kids have been little, I was able to like join a world where I didn't have these constraints and I could go on these adventures, even though I couldn't really go on these adventures, but in my world, I could. And I got to really, you know, live, um, you know, uh, cathartically, is that the right word through, through these characters? And, and I could, you know, kind of build a, a new world for myself that, I mean, not that you asked, um, but uh, that's, no, that's it's, it's totally interesting. I mean, I love hearing what, what other authors, you know, what, what brought them to, to writing and what makes them stay there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so tell me about your your path to publishing. Um, the first one. Um, how did you? You know, we were talking before about you know somebody says, hey, you know, you have more of a chance of getting struck by lightning or you know whatever than than getting something published. What was your process to to getting um, this work of art into the world? Oh Lord, it was a long and wonky one. I had um, I you know I finished finished that first draft of that book, and despite not wanting to tell anybody I was writing, as soon as I was done with it, within like an hour, I sent off a query letter, which was, you know, mistake number one of millions. But a couple of years later, I'm working with a professional editor and I'm, I'm starting to realize all the things that I did wrong. And I'm starting to, you know, have conversations with agents that are that I'm seriously considering and they're seriously considering, considering me. And, you know, there were a couple of them that we went, you know, we were doing R and R's back and forth for two years, one of them almost three years. And it was just, it was getting to where I felt like, okay, I, on one, on one hand, I felt like the book, the work was so much better with their feedback and, and their recommendations made the, the book so much better. But then I felt like I, you know, just something in my gut said, we're there. This is it. This is where it is. And I was still kind of getting that, let's tweak this, let's tweak that. And I felt like, like some of it might be just more of the regionalization that I knew, I knew what happened in that part of Texas. And that's the way I wanted to tell the story. And I didn't know, you know, I don't know, I can't be in everybody else's head, but, but I, I felt like that was the feedback I was where it was motivated. And a friend of mine had published with Spark Press, which is a hybrid press, which, you know, they, it's not like they publish anything that comes to them, but, you know, they, they vet it. And, and with mine, they even looked at it and said, okay, but we think this still needs another good edit. And so I was coming up on at the time, I think it was coming up on 50 and I felt like, dang, I'm going to be 900 by the time I get my first book published. <laughs> I just felt, you know, I, I quit my job and I, I mean, I was, I was doing it. I was, my husband said, you're working more now as a writer than you were when you were working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. And so I felt like I, I was all in, but I needed to get this thing published, the first one published. I just felt like it was ready. And so we did that and 
and I talked to Spark Press about doing it, making it into a sequel, not a sequel, a series. And so the second one is, is coming out with Spark Press as well. And they've been, they've been amazing to work with. I, you know, their editing team is great. Their, um, their distribution model is fabulous. And, and so I really felt like I needed that. I didn't want to go it alone and, and go straight indie. I just didn't feel like I knew enough about the distribution and that piece. Now I did, I did produce the audiobook on both of these. Um, I hired it out, but I did that. And, and that was, you know, even that is a lot of work. Oh, sure. Is. Of, oh boy. <laughs> but um, so anyway, it was, you know, those were both good experiences and, and I don't know what I'm going to do moving on. I've, I've, you know, I've talked to Spark Press about doing a third book in the series. Um, and then I also have, have a couple other things, you know, blowing around in the wind that I'm looking at other options on too. So, you know, I think, you know, every now and then I'll talk to an author who tell me, Hey, you know, I, I mean, I wrote this book and I sent it out to one agent and they signed me immediately. Oh, yeah. There was a bidding war and she's 24 and I want to jump through the screen and I want to choke somebody. Um, but that's the exception to the rule. Um, I mean, it, it does happen, but I, I don't think what most people realize is that the publishing world, the traditional sort of publishing world moves at an incredibly slow pace. Um, and there are some old, old, old rules. And for someone like me who grew up in this world of like, I, I cut my teeth in marketing in the 90s doing interactive work, and we were making stuff up as we went along. I mean, it was the Wild West. Yeah. And, but because of that, like, I had zero tolerance for, um, for, I hate to say it, for BS and for old rules, because I don't think old rules apply anymore. Um, so I, I always like to say that, you know, indie publishers or hybrid publishers, I mean, we're, we're kind of like pirates. You know, we have, we have a pirate ship. We, we can steer the ship. And if, if you do it right, and you know, you get get yourself a great editor. The distribution stuff you can figure out. Um, the production stuff you can figure out. You know, you really can um, produce at a faster pace um, and and build a following pretty quickly. Um, now it takes a lot of guerrilla tactics, um, if you can even use that term anymore. But it's um, it can be very rewarding at the same time. But I, I don't have like you. I mean, you're saying you know you're going to be 900 before the first one comes out. You know, I you know I don't have the the patience for it. I mean, and it's, it's form letter after form letter coming from agents who'd never want to take a chance on you. Um, and I'm not saying that that's the wrong way to go for for other authors. It just I mean, it certainly wasn't the way that um, that I I went um, as well. So, but I think it was fortunate. My timing was fortunate because when I had when I had been accepted by Spark Press and we started down this road, I didn't didn't know COVID was going to happen. None of us did. And when COVID happened, so many contracts got postponed, you know, their pub date that was supposed to happen in 2020 or 2021 turned out to be, you know, now they're at 2022. And, and so for that reason alone, it was, it was a huge boon because my, a lot of my friends, their books didn't go out on time and mine did. Um, but also, you know, I had friends that had that had signed with some of them with big publishers who warned me that, you know, you think you're going to be in target. You think you're going to be in, you know, all these different places, but when it comes down to it, if, if that publishing house, you know, they, they've only got so much in the way of resources and they're handling your PR. So you've got to remember that 
you could end up being down at the very end when it came to the priority list for who gets PR. And so that was one of the reasons I wanted to go with a hybrid publisher because I thought, okay, I can, I'll work with a PR, with a publicist and then they'll do the book part. And then I don't need to worry about that because that's going to be a variable that I don't need to worry about because I know how much money is going to, going to go out and I know where they're going to place me. And so that's been something that, you know, I think even if I had a, a traditional contract, I would probably still work with a publicist, a publicist that I work with directly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about your podcast. Um, so what is, uh, what is the name of the podcast and what was the sort of the impetus for you to, to start one? Uh, it is Chris Clink's writing table podcast, because somebody already had one that has been kind of sitting dormant for a while. That's writing table podcast. So, um, Kristen Higgins is a, she writes women's fiction and, and has written some romance as well. And she is just, she's been a mentor and just a phenomenal lady and a good friend, but she talked to a lot of us early on when we would come around to the Romance Writers Association meetings and things like that. And she'd say, there's plenty of room at the table, meaning that we don't need, writers don't need to compete against each other. We're, you know, readers are going to read more than one book and they're going to read the book they want. So it's not like, you know, I, I, we're all fighting over that red car over there. You know, there's going to be something for everybody. And so she's, she was encouraging us to pay it forward, pay, pay it forward, the kindness that you get, but also, you know, support each other. And, and I have been blown away at the support in the writing community. I mean, other writers who you don't even know, know who you are you know, we'll send you a message and say, hey, good luck today on, on your release or whatever. And it's just so refreshing. You know, if you've, you've probably come from a world kind of like I did with a lot of marketing and, and, you know, people, I work with a lot of great people, but I've never worked with people like just one after another, after another, it's, it, it's atypical for someone not to be kind yeah. and not to be outrageously supportive and generous. And so, um, that's, that's where it came from. And I wanted to encourage that conversation that Kristen began. And I wanted to give people that like books place to hear about, you know, new books that are coming out, but also people that are considering writing or maybe starting out so they can kind of get the behind the scenes of, of what went into that book, what, what everybody's writing journey looks like, because it's different for everybody. You know, you brought up the 24 year old that gets the contract and all that is that is so rare. And so for a lot of us, we see that one and we're going, oh my gosh, I'm 51 years old. I'm, I, I still don't have an agent. What's, what's wrong with me? And it's just different for everybody. And so I think that's a good reminder. And, and that's what I try to put forth in my podcast is, you know, different examples of different authors. And I, I try to get, you know, I had Lemony Snicket on not that long ago. I have you know, I actually interviewed Kristen Higgins last week for the first time. And out of like 50 episodes, that was the first, I'm, it won't air for a while, but, but it's just funny, the different, the different authors I've got, you know, children's authors and sci-fi and, and I try to do that because I want, I want newbie writers to see that, you know, there's something for everybody and there's something to be learned from every author. Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing just the, the the tips and tricks you pick up just by talking to people and just by listening to to their stories and their journeys. And yeah, I mean, there's no two journeys that are that are alike, but there, there's absolutely some sort of insights you can glean from um, from each of them. Um, 
when um, imagine, you know, for a moment, Chris, that you were kind of younger, like younger than you are now. Um, you've been very generous in telling us your age. But um, and let's say you could write a letter to that younger self and you could pick the age. You know, it could be your 16 year old self. It could be that that child in grammar school who was, you know, finding a, a passion for writing it could be whatever. What what would your letter to me be? That that's that's my my little Brad Paisley reference. But what's what's your letter to me? What would you tell your younger self um, about you know what what life as a as a writer is going to be like? You know, I I had um, when I was twenty nine, I was diagnosed with MS, and I have two older sisters with it as well, and and we've all done done pretty well. And but it it's still it's a scary diagnosis when you first get it, and. I remember thinking I'm going to be in a wheelchair and I have these two kids and I'm not going to be able to do anything. And I had, I hadn't finished graduate school then I'd, I'd taken a little bit of grad school, taken off to have babies. And so my kids were like two and four, I think at the time. And, and I remember going and throwing, throwing my journals away, you know, back then you had paper journals. I remember throwing the journals that I'd saved away thinking I'm, I'm not going to be able to do anything like that. And my husband took me to, I don't know what it, like a Best Buy or whatever they were then and bought me a laptop and said, you've always wanted to write. Here, here's, start writing. And I did. And like I told you, nothing I wrote will ever see the light of day. I mean, I have, I found a box when I moved a couple of years ago of all this stuff that I'd written in. But I wish I could have told my, that girl who was in a cloud of, you know, I'm not, I, I don't walk right. I can't, you know, I don't recognize my handwriting. Nothing is, nothing was good at the time. I wish I could have told her to hang in there and hang on to that laptop and write all the crappy stories. Start, don't stop midway because you don't think it's good. Keep going, get to the end. And you're never going to publish that one, but you finished it and you learned a ton by finishing it. But when you don't finish it, you don't get, the, it's like taking a class and, and dropping out midway. You know, you really need to go from the idea, you know, that nugget of an idea to typing out all caps, the end. You get it. You get what goes into it. You get what was good and bad and ugly and, you know, whatever. So, so that's really what I think I would tell her is just to, just to go back to that day, to that laptop and keep keep writing. And because a couple of years from then, you're, you're walking, isn't ever going to be that pretty, but you know, you're going to be able to, you're going to do this, but it's going to take a while and it's going to take a lot of practice. Wow. Not, not, wow. The, not the walking, the, the writing. <laughs> the writing. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, sure. that's, uh, that's, that's powerful. It's a powerful lesson in there. Um, you know, kind of not giving up and, and finishing what you start. It's almost like I was thinking about like, yeah, people who um who are running a marathon and, and might quit, you know, at mile thirteen or something, you know, not and and how you beat yourself up for not kind of finishing the race, you know. Granted, there's no injuries or something like that, but right, right. Um, so what's what's next for you? What's next? So this book is coming out next week. Um, what's uh what's 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 coming up next, Chris? Well, I just finished drafting and it is an ugly draft, but it's one, when I finish a draft, I usually park it for a while and let it air out until the stink goes away. And then I go back to it <laughs> with fresh eyes. And so I, I just finished one about a, a young lady who 
comes to Kansas um, to thinks she's selling this estate that her dad has left her and um, it it needs a lot of work and so she can't sell it until it has some structural problems she can't sell it till it's sold till it's fixed and so it keeps her here for a while and she learns about some family secrets and she finds some journals of a woman that had lived in that house from the 20s to the 60s so there's this whole family web of you know uncovered secrets, that kind of thing. And then I'm actually starting a new book now that I, I don't want to say too much about because I don't know where it's going yet. So I just, you know, it's NaNoWriMo month. And so I started it and we're going to see where it takes me. I'm going to, on a writing retreat, um, after my book comes out, I'm going to a writing retreat with three other authors and I'm hoping that they will give me the inspiration and a little guidance on whether or not this is something that I ought to try. So. Well, that one you were talking about um, with, with the house that needs work and the journals. I mean, I'm smelling Hallmark Hall of Fame all over. <laughs> well, you know, Hallmark doesn't like books that have cuss words in them. And oh, well. I know. So sorry. Sorry, readers. Just fair warned. <laughs> Maybe that's why they never turned any of mine into a... Uh you know, into, into something for the, uh, the, the small screen. I've tried, <laughs> believe me, I've tried. <laughs> I guess they don't like certain themes. Those snobs. Um, well, this was fun. Thank you so much, Chris, for, uh, for, for chatting with me. Well, thank you. Um, and thanks for telling the story about what happens behind the book and uncorking, you know, the, all the nitty gritty behind the scenes. All the nitty gritty, all the stuff that, uh, you know, it's the black box is what I call it. What people oh, don't, yeah. don't really get to see. But tell us on the 9th when the book comes out, where can people buy Sissy Klein is completely normal? They can buy it anywhere that books or audiobooks or ebooks are sold. And if your little local indie doesn't have it, don't give up on them. Just tell them what you want and they'll get it for you. There you go. Got to support the indies. Absolutely, we do. I go to Watermark Books in Wichita, Kansas is my favorite little indie, and they take great care of us. So. Very good. Well, uh, thank you so much, Chris, and I wish you all the best with the launch. Thank you. You have a great day. It was really fun.